Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories, in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generations Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinker Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Christina Fryer, thank you so much for coming on Hidden Histories. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I would love to speak to you about your research on post-emancipation Jamaica. What was Jamaica like during this period and the lingering effects of imperial administration? So as you you mentioned, I work on uh, post-emancipation Jamaica And for me, that is a period that begins roughly in 1838. uh, And then one of my arguments or or one of the things that I think is interesting to think about is has a post-emancipation period actually ended? And I think there are a number of arguments and there are a number of scholars who would argue that it it hasn't. But for me, I'm, I'm focusing primarily on the period between 1850, roughly, and 1910, which is a bit longer of a post-emancipation period than than many scholars would focus on. And what has really drawn me to this period is sort of thinking about how societies moved from being societies where slavery was really essential to sort of all, you know, what was really a bedrock of, of that society to one in which there is now a, a large group of freed people who have claims on the state that they can make, who now have legal standing, and who are now not legally bound to their former enslavers. And so how does a society make that transition is one of the things I'm really interested in. And in the British Caribbean, so Jamaica is a British colony at this point, Part of what I find especially interesting here is that emancipation and colonialism are still coinciding. And this is somewhat unusual outside of the Caribbean. So in many parts of the Americas, slavery ended in some close proximity to the ending of colonialism. So 
in particular, if you think about Latin America uh, and the Spanish-American revolutions that created the Latin American republics, you start to see the winding down of slavery through a series of gradual abolition or free womb laws that really tie the end of slavery to the end of imperialism. And this is not the dynamic that you see in the Caribbean, in the French Caribbean, or in the British Caribbean. And I'm really interested in that in that dynamic. So, so, just gonna ask, so during this period, what were the most obvious effects and clashes? So is this seen in housing, the economy, or uh, healthcare? Really, post-emancipation, or, or the, the ending of slavery, really changes almost every aspect of Jamaican life. In particular, if we start with, you know, the, with, with the economic impact, abolitionists and missionaries and planters, uh, as well as government officials, had all intended for freed people to continue working on plantations in the same number and to the same extent that they had during slavery, but for wages and without the level of violence uh, that, had, that had been common to slavery. And by the early to mid-1840s, freed people effectively abandoned the plantation. They did not want to work on the plantation, on, on plantations as much as they had during slavery. They did not feel that the wages they were being offered were fair. And in Jamaica, and this is something that's specific to Jamaica, during slavery, enslaved Jamaicans had been able to build their own homes, and they had also been able to tend sort of small plots of land that had been given to them by enslavers. And that was a way for plantation owners to effectively not have to pay for the food that enslaved people ate. And so these plots of land were known as provision grounds, and they are a really important part of, uh, of Jamaican life and Jamaican history. And these provision grounds were, there was a, the planters threatened to, to take away the provision ground from freed people or to make them pay additional rent for it. And this was seen as just a violation for freed people of, you know, some customary agreements. And so again, by the, by the mid-1840s, you start to see the large-scale abandonment of plantations by, by freed people who take up other work. Some of them moved into Jamaica's towns. Others of them moved into the more mountainous regions of Jamaica. Some of them set up free villages, so they might purchase a plot of land in the mountains and set up a community there. And so they were really sort of taking charge of their labor and their autonomy. And what happened then is that the plantation economy collapsed. And this was actually made much worse by the fact that in Britain, British politicians were moving towards a kind of free trade a love of free trade, which meant that they took away protection or protective tariffs on British Caribbean sugar. So British Caribbean sugar became more expensive than the sugar that was produced in Cuba or Brazil by enslaved people. And so the Jamaican economy completely plummets, and then free people are blamed for that economic crisis. Free people are also really trying to figure out how to arrange their families, what kind of family structures they're interested in, the religious practices that they want to do. They've been guided through some of this by, by missionaries, but in the 1840s and 1850s, they're also less interested in following the sort of strict Victorian morality of, say, the Quakers or the Baptists. And so there are clashes there as free people really wanted the autonomy to 
create the lives that they wanted, to love who they wanted, to raise their children as they saw fit. There was a real emphasis on, on, on kinship networks and perhaps broader kinship networks than the nuclear family. And all of these clashes combined with the economic crisis uh, really leave free people in a precarious position, at least in the eyes of, of the British. So do you think that the economic crash precipitated because there was a cholera epidemic, wasn't there? I don't know if this was in the 1850s or maybe earlier, but how was that How was that managed and what was the experience of people around that time? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's a, there's a cholera epidemic in Jamaica in 1850, and this is part of the global cholera pandemic uh, of the late uh, 1840s and early 1850s. So the cholera moved through Europe and the United States in the previous years. And there are few things that take place in Jamaica with the cholera epidemic. First of all, it is Black Jamaicans who were most severely affected by the cholera pandemic. It was Black Jamaicans who were the most likely to die of cholera during this period. And these were, of course, also people who were living in some of the worst conditions on the island, um, often in quite crowded areas of town with relatively poor sewage and running water systems, poor infrastructure, poor street infrastructure, poor lighting. And the doctors and uh, scientists who sort of observed what was going on in Jamaica tried to blame, and, and often and, and did blame, I should say, blamed Black Jamaicans for sort of being morally deficient. So the idea was that they were morally deficient, they were not living in sufficiently healthy ways, and that had made them most susceptible to cholera, and this explained why why they were dying in such large numbers. And the, there was also this, this sort of argument that paralleled or, or that connected the cholera epidemic to emancipation by suggesting that the same supposed moral deficiencies of Black people in, in Jamaica was also why emancipation had failed. So abolition had not sufficiently taught Black Jamaicans how to live, uh, how to live appropriately. That was the argument. But of course, what we know from how cholera spreads is that poor sewage and poor local public health practices that are actually you know, a government's responsibility, that these are the conditions that make a community more susceptible to a disease like cholera. And if when you look through the documents for this time period, um, there are people who are just really doing their best to avoid responsibility, avoid municipal responsibility, and are instead placing the blame on freed people who they already are quite angry with because of the economic crisis. Do you think that this anger is what particularly sparked the Morant Bay Rebellion, which was, am I right in saying that that was 1865? Yes, yes. Okay. What what happened? So the, the Morant Bay Rebellion is in October of 1865, And yes, this is sort of the culmination of about 30 years of of these clashes. And they they get worse over over time. In in particular, I would say in the late 1840s, early 1850s, in Britain, but also in Jamaica, you start to see the emergence of some particularly virulent forms of racism that are starting to identify, they're starting to identify Black people as almost biologically inferior or at least inherently inferior, and not quote-unquote civilizable. Uh, and there are a number of historians who have shown how that, how that process happened in really great detail. So in October of 1865, a man by the name of Paul Bogle leads a rebellion in 
Morant Bay, which is a parish town in south in the southeastern parish of Jamaica. And the rebellion was in response to a series of trials that had been happening in the Morant Bay courthouse that were prosecuting people for trespassing on estates, on abandoned plantations. And there have been a series of these trials, and, and these kinds of trials were, were relatively common in, in post-emancipation uh, Jamaica. And so Bogle and his forces attack the courthouse, attack the police station. They actually burn down uh, the courthouse. And this rebellion, which, is, which was a local rebellion, again, in, in the southeastern parish of St. Thomas, this rebellion is seen by the governor at the time, a man by the name of Edward Eyre, is seen as a as, as a rebellion that is likely to spread across the entire island of Jamaica, and he really views this as a second Haiti, and that that is his language. Um, so he sees this as a possible as a possible overthrow of the island's colonial system, and so he suppresses this rebellion pretty harshly. The major leaders of the rebellion are all uh, either shot during the repression or are executed. And he also attacks his rival, his political rival, uh, a mixed-race man by the name of George William Gordon, who had been a politician and, a, and had been part of the, the Jamaica Assembly, but had not actually been part of the organizing of this uprising. But Ayer sees this as an opportunity to get a rival effectively out of the way. He organizes a sham trial. Gordon is convicted in this trial and then is also executed. And this prompts, this event prompts a uh, sort of intellectual and political crisis in, in Britain, and also a crisis in terms of sort of colonial rule. Now, eight years previous uh, to this had been the mutiny in India that had also led to some significant changes in how India was ruled. So the East India Company was effectively shuttered, and then the British state took over in a form of direct rule to India. And while Jamaica had not been run by a joint stock company, effectively that transition from a more indirect form of rule in which the British government entrusted Jamaica effectively to the legislature and to local elites on the island, that structure changes. And so London takes over, uh, it abolishes the assembly and the legislature, and installs a form of direct rule, which was known as Crown Colony Rule, and which is also rolled out across most of the rest of the British Caribbean. There's some other significances about this. So there's a an intellectual dispute among uh, British intellectuals who are debating whether Eyre had the right to suppress the rebellion this significantly. So on one side, you would see somebody like John Stuart Mill, who argued that Air needed to be tried for his too aggressive response. Well, on the other side, in support of Air, were people like Thomas Carlyle and Charles Dickens, who, again, drawing on some fairly racist arguments about Black people and Black Jamaicans, argued that the island needed a firm hand. John Stuart Mill's call for Air to be to be tried doesn't succeed. Air is not tried for uh, for his crimes in in Jamaica, but he also is recalled from the island uh, and does not serve in a colonial post again. Back in Jamaica, though, one of the really important things about this rebellion and the aftermath is that it essentially closes temporarily the door for Black participation in politics. So with the closing of the assembly, that also sort of shuts down electoral politics. 
uh, and Black and mixed race politicians had been slowly making their way into Jamaican political life. And that door also begins to close because after 1865, there are no there there were no elections for uh, for a number of, of decades. So something else that you have written about because you you frame a lot of your research around a series of disasters such as the cholera epidemic and the Morant Bay Rebellion. What about the healthcare system at the time? You wrote an interesting article about the Kingston Lunatic Asylum scandal. What happened and what can that event or uh, disaster even tell us about imperial government attitudes to healthcare? So the healthcare system in, in, Jama- in Jamaica in the 19th century, again, is also a system that is transitioning from slavery to emancipation. And during the slavery period, there was, as you might imagine, there was not especially robust uh, healthcare for, uh, for enslaved, enslaved people. And so these systems now suddenly had to cater for the, the whole population of the island. And these systems are often in, in, in quite poor shape. They were underfunded. This is especially the case as planters began to uh, abandon Jamaica and return to Britain. So they're, they're often in, in, in quite poor shape. And in the late 1850s, there's a years-long scandal over the conditions in the, the Kingston Lunatic Asylum uh, and also the adjoining public hospital, although in my work I've been focusing mostly on the, on the asylum. And this crisis, as, as I sort of put, uh, talk about it in my research, is really led by one particular doctor, a man by the name of Lewis Squire Bowerbank, who had been rejected for a post in the hospital and then proceeded to launch a crusade against conditions within it. And what, what he describes in these institutions is just sort of whole-scale failures. So everything from, um, from the standard of buildings, levels of overcrowding, treatment protocols, uh, and then also in particular for the asylum, the levels of violence within that institution. And what he describes are frequent violent attacks that staff are launching against patients in in the asylum. And in particular, he documents uh, a practice that he referred to and that people would subsequently refer to as tanking, which was when asylum patients were essentially, and in in particular women in the asylum, were essentially held underwater for long stretches of time and then pulled up just as they were about to drown. Uh, And often this process would be repeated several times. And from the evidence that we have in, in the records, it does seem that at least a few people were killed as a result of repeated tankings. And he tries to push this crusade in in Jamaica first. So he sends a lot of uh, documents to to Jamaica's governor, who isn't paying a lot of attention. He also publishes pamphlets that are that circulate within Jamaica's intellectual elites, in particular the, the medical community. Some people are on his side; other people are not on his side. He's of course battling against the director of the facilities himself, who of course is defending the state of the facilities. And part of what I found, there are a few things I found really interesting about this discussion or this this event. First of all, it was fascinating to me just how much the how much debates about asylum care in Britain were factoring into what's happening in Jamaica. And there's a real debate and discussion about whether colonial facilities needed to sort of hold to the same standards as British institutions. And it's interesting to sort of see which people within this scandal 
believe that the asylum in Jamaica does need to hold to British standards and which people don't uh, think it needs to. Uh, and then that, to me, gets us back to this question of how freed people are being thought about during this period, because these ideas, the, the ideas that I mentioned earlier, in which Black people are being seen, are increasingly being seen as uh, inherently inferior, really feed into the discussions of how they're being treated in this asylum. And so the more, or the, the later you get into the 1850s and the early 1860s, the more you start to see rhetoric about these people are not recoverable, really, and so the fact that there is any provision for them is sufficient. Now, it turns out that uh, eventually this doctor, uh, Dr. Bowerbank, is able to get the colonial office to pay attention, and he effectively does that through the narrative of this woman, Anne Pratt, who I've also written about. This is a woman who spent, a mixed-race woman who spent seven months in the asylum, in the Kingston Lunatic Asylum, and she tells her story, which is then published in a pamphlet that eventually gets to London. And this seems to turn matters around quite significantly, and the colonial office effect effectively says that all colonial institutions in all colonies need to hold to these British standards of, of medical care. That, of course, does not hold. There, there are other scholars who work on healthcare in the 1920s in Jamaica who also write about the, the asylum, and it's quickly back to its previous condition. But there is this interesting moment in the early 1860s where the British government insists that these institutions need to be holding to British standards, that they need to be treating inmates with the highest possible standard of care, that this level of violence against women who were deemed to be uh, insane was not acceptable. And I find that an interesting moment in the context that just in, in, in three years, uh, you will have the Morant Bay Rebellion, in which the government seems to be turning away from its previous ideas. Mm. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW. 
Who is Anne Pratt and what are her experiences at the asylum? That is some significant evidence about the general female experience in post-colonial institutions like this, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So Anne Pratt was a, a mixed-race woman. From what I can tell, she was born enslaved in 1830 and slavery ended in 1834. Uh, so she was she was freed. And we don't have a lot of evidence about her about her life, but she is from the sort of northwestern, one of the northwestern parishes of Hanover in Jamaica. And it seems that she ends up in the asylum after having been assaulted in her hometown. So it seems that she was sexually assaulted or raped, perhaps by an acquaintance. And when she reported this, she, so she reported this, there were trial proceedings. The trial proceedings seem to have at some point turned against her because she basically at some point she is accused of having shouted profanities at this man in the street when she ran into him at a later at a later point and so the proceedings turn against her uh she is fined i believe and then the night of that judgment and she she admits that she sort of briefly lost her senses and she maintains that this was a brief, a brief period. She was in a, she was taken to the female prison in, in the parish where she was cared for. And the matron there suggested perhaps that she might be interested in, in taking some rest in Kingston. And it doesn't appear to be clear that she knew what this rest entailed. So she sails to, she sails around the island to Kingston, or she's taken on a, on a boat, I should say, to, to Kingston. She is uh, admitted into the facility. And then from there, she both experiences tankings herself and other levels of violence. Uh, and she, of course, witnesses a significant amount of violence. And what she sees are women being hit, beaten with any number of instruments or just hands and fists by asylum staff. There is an asylum matron, Judith Ryan, who is described as stealing food and provisions from inmates, forcing in particular male inmates to participate in the violence against against women patients. She also has inmates who have to take care of her pigs. And then, of course, she is presiding over this, what, what, what appears to be almost daily incidents of tanking practices. And Pratt describes a number of these instances, including, and she's the person that we have a lot of information about, uh, potential deaths from tanking. And from what I can tell, nobody appears to die in the middle of a tanking, but the the effects of numerous of them uh, really take a toll on some on some of the women in the facility. Is that like a PTSD or is that a physical? From what I can tell, it's physical. So some of these some of these women were in quite weak condition anyway, and they were they were suffering with any number of of ailments in addition to any potential uh, mental illness. Um, although I have to say, you know, I'm always quite hesitant to describe these women or or any of these people in the asylum as actually insane. I just don't think we have the we we don't have the evidence mm. for this, and we also know that people's behavior, uh, so, so behavior that was de- deemed as deviant in this time period was often understood to be in, you know, insane. But in the context of such a harsh, a harsh set of ideas about Black people and a real lack of any interest in or concern in their condition, I'm not comfortable declaring that these women were, uh, were mentally ill. Yeah, of course. But, but yeah, from what I can tell in, in the records that we do have, it does seem to be a lot of physical deterioration after especially a series of uh, of tankings. 
And so Bowerbank is who the, the doctor who is really pushing this crusade. Bowerbank is visiting this facility quite frequently. And it appears that he met Anne Pratt at some point. We don't have a lot of information about how that relationship uh, or that friendship or mentorship, which whatever you might want to describe it, how that developed. But it appears that she leaves the asylum in July of 1860, having arrived in January of 1860, and possibly goes straight to his home. He may have been the person who was responsible for her discharge. And at some point in the next few weeks, she tells her story to somebody who then transcribes it. And then Bowerbank seems to be behind the publication of that pamphlet. So that did have and a significant effect on the future management of colonial institutions and colonial healthcare such as this, post-colonial. Yes, and across the British Empire. I mean, part of why, I, I mean, her story is, is, is truly remarkable uh, because her impact, even if it was brief, her impact is beyond just Jamaica. That pamphlet, so the pamphlet comes out in 1860. That's about two years into this scandal in which Bowerbank had really had no success shifting the colonial office. The pamphlet arrives in London and almost immediately, if if you follow the colonial correspondence and the internal minutes of the colonial office, almost immediately they, they, they shift their tone and they start asking what's happening in Jamaica. So they insist upon a detailed investigation of what's happening in Jamaica. And then at the end of this process, they send out a circular both to Jamaica, but also to all the British colonies, first asking governors to check on the state of affairs in their asylums and to ensure that British standards are being followed. So her impact is is tremendous. Going back to your earlier argument that emancipation was a much longer and drawn out process than is currently understood, how do you believe this is evident in post-emancipation Jamaica and actually even into the modern day? So I think, so for, for one, you know, we've talked about the Morant Bay Rebellion, and for many people that they would sort of identify the end of the Morant Bay Rebellion as a kind of end of the post-emancipation period. And for me, I am actually quite interested in what happens after Morant Bay. So as I said, the work that I'm doing really continues up until around 1910, because I think Morant Bay draws to a close a certain kind of political optimism in Britain about emancipation and abolition. And I should say that that optimism in Britain was a quite paternalistic optimism and had actually nothing to do with, with what freed people wanted to do with their lives. But there was still this investment or this idea that there was a good project that was happening in Jamaica and the rest of the Caribbean. And after that, after 1865, it, it effectively switches to this like pretty grim pessimism that, again, as I mentioned, has these sort of explicit racist underpinnings. But what I'm interested in in this in this sort of second half of of the work that I'm doing, so from you know 1865 to, to 1910, is the way that slavery and emancipation still sort of is lingering on as an issue to be worked through by imperial governors, but also a situation that freed people and now effectively their descendants, who you know we might even think of as black British subjects, how they are responding to the continued legacies of of slavery and emancipation. So, for example, in the 1880s, there's a a shift towards a new form of constitution uh, or or an adjustment to the post-1865 constitution. 
I'm really interested in ideas about how the British are trying to rethink what Jamaica can be within the empire since it's no longer going to be a sugar colony. So this is a period where you start to see tourism uh, as an industry start to emerge, but also where you see they're trying to shift towards fruit growing, so things like bananas and, and whatnot. I'm also especially interested in the rise of the United States in the region and how the British respond to that. And then in particular, as the U.S. is becoming a larger presence, that also means that Black Jamaicans have to sort of reckon with an overlapping set of racial regimes and and ideas about race. So they're dealing with the ideas about race that are in Britain and in, in the British Caribbean that are quite harsh but aren't necessarily formal segregation. And then they're also thinking about how they relate to a possible United States presence in parts of the Caribbean that does have segregation. So, of course, a Jim Crow, a Jim Crow U.S. So all of these things are sort of overlapping in this region. And I'm really interested in how the the legacies of emancipation continue to overshadow these debates and these discussions. Christina, what are you working on now and where can people read more of your work and even, I mean, even read more on, on this subject? Because it's fascinating and so expansive. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to finish a book uh, about this about this topic, which, you know, I feel like um, this is something that all academics say <laughs> that we're trying to finish a book. I've written some pieces about this, some academic journal articles uh, about this. You know, I think there's also there's there's a growing literature on the on on sort of the the, the mid period of, of what I'm of what I've been talking about, so the 1840s and 1850s. But I think the part that the literature is that I'm really excited about um, that I'm hoping to contribute to is there's there's a lot of really interesting work on the post emancipation Caribbean that is less sort of bound to imperial divides. So work by people like Ada Ferrer, who who is sort of thinking about Haiti and Cuba together, the work of uh, the scholar Anne Eller, who whose first book was on the Dominican Republic and emancipation there. I'm also really inspired by the work of people like Natasha Lightfoot, who works on Antigua. And Antigua, which is a much smaller British colony, had a bit of a different experience of emancipation than Jamaica. So those counterpoints are also uh, are also really important. I am also, you know, I also am increasingly doing media work as, you know, this this year I've been selected as a new generation thinker, which has been a really exciting opportunity. So hopefully I will be bringing some of these things to bear in radio. And part of what I hope to be doing in the next several months with this platform uh, is to also be thinking about the relationship between emancipation, colonialism, uh, and then British Caribbean athletes. So athletes in the 20th century who are, of course, descendants of, uh, of freed people and who are still working in these colonial spaces, but who are also doing that while asserting both a Caribbean and a British identity. And I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but part of what I find fascinating about the post-emancipation period is that in addition to making enslaved people free, it also made enslaved people British subjects. This is one of the emergences of Black British people, but these are, of course, Black British people who are outside of the British mainland. And so thinking through these ideas through sports is something that I'm really looking forward to doing uh, in the coming years. Yeah, there's so many opportunities to look at you know, how you discuss identity over this over this period and the reframing identities, etc. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, Christina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.